system of heaven will penetrate into our, our, our consciousness, our humanity, into our choices and make us different people. Amen. Okay, I'm going to read from James 3. I'm going to read from verse 13 through to 18. You can follow that with me. James writes this, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, then gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Amen. So the um, subject this, this evening is wisdom. Um, can anyone remember what we talked about last week? Ah, well done, Michelle. I'll come back to that, yeah. And um, the tongue, wasn't it? How we speak. Um, um, Polly, I wonder if you could just flick up those pictures for me. This was essentially what I said last week. I didn't really need as long to say it as I took. Um, but it was summarized in this, the next slide, which was that acronym. Do you remember? So if you are, um, we, we talked about how do we put a guard on our tongue? How do we watch what we say so that we reflect the heart of God rather than what bleh, just comes out so often? Um, and then we regret later. And we said, well, if, if God has got control over your tongue, then what comes out of our tongue, out of our mouth, will be true. We will seek that it always is helpful. We want to inspire people by it, not drag situations down. We'll only talk when it's necessary and not just because we want to be heard, which I think is a big one. And then what we say will be kind. In other words, we will reflect a concern for the welfare of the person to whom we are speaking or about whom we are speaking and not just selfish ambition. In other words, people to be impressed by what we say. Now this week I want to talk about wisdom, which follows on precisely where that passage ends. It's almost like, put a guard on your tongue and get wisdom. As if the two are linked in some way. As if there is some um, intrinsic connection between zipping it and acquiring the wisdom of God. Uh, let me ask you a quick question. Thinking of people in the public eye, someone we would all know and recognize, who would you think of as being wise? I don't, well, God is sort of in the public eye, Phil. That's not quite what I had in mind. <laughs> but technically, I can't call that wrong. No? All right. But, um, yeah. Anyone of a more incarnate nature? Um, who you would call wise? Nelson Mandela, okay. No bias at all. It's pure... Okay, all right. Anyone else? 
I would point out that you're struggling. I mean, I don't have to say one at a time, do I? <laughs> that, that is a new definition of the word struggling. <laughs> wise Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson, wise. Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? Perhaps it's under a bushel. Is that what you mean? The Queen, you say she's wise, okay? Yeah? Took you five minutes, didn't it? Anyone else? Uh, yeah, albeit deceased, yes. Um, but yeah, okay. Guys, mum and dad, okay. Let, I, I think that exercise actually fulfilled the aim of it, which is that actually they're few and far between. In some cases, dead, and in one case, the Lord Almighty himself. <laughs> we, I think, struggle for public wisdom. I think we're starved of it. I think we are not uh, led uh, by people who I would class as wisdom. That doesn't mean to say I think they're bad people. That doesn't mean to say I think there's no one out there um, with wisdom. And if I'd said, who do you know privately that you would class as wise, you would probably have answers, except that none of us would recognize who you're talking about. But, but, but publicly, I don't think uh, we live in a rich uh, surplus of leadership wisdom. That might be unfair, um, but I don't think so. Proverbs 4 says this, Do not forsake wisdom. And she will protect you. Love her, and she will watch over you. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. Though it cost all you have, get understanding. I think uh, we struggle to define what this is, because we only have one word for it. Um, and it, 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 it starts to get tainted by all sorts of different connotations, doesn't it? Um, we tend to define wisdom on the basis of our own experience of reality rather than what the Bible might describe it as. In other words, um, although um, I might see something which I would describe as wisdom, it may not um, be what you mean by it. We tend to think of people who are clever. I mean, I thought somebody would say Stephen Fry or someone like that, you know, and I would say, hi, he's not wise, he's just clever. And then I would have had you, and that would have been 1-0 to me. You know? um, but no one, no one fell into that trap. But there are people like that, aren't we, who, who are full of knowledge, but don't necessarily exude worldly wisdom or even spiritual wisdom. Nobody said the Archbishop of Canterbury today, um, although they might have done. God's wisdom, I think, is something very distinct from, from worldly wisdom and um, difficult to explain in human terms. Most of what we look at as being wisdom relates to our own experience of the world. Who is good at handling life? Who is good at um, in interpreting how the world works, managing it, overcoming it, and living successfully, and maybe passing that knowledge on to someone else? But you know, the, the more worldly-wise you become, the more you become part of the problem, the more you become part of the system, the more you perpetuate an environment which is largely deaf to the word of God. 
And the wiser you become in the ways of the world, the harder it can be to see the wisdom of God. Because the common wisdom of the world is almost always about self. It's almost always about how to succeed, how to thrive, how to survive, how to overcome problems and how to turn them to your advantage. The wisdom of God is usually presented in the context of giving and blessing others. And furthermore, James characterizes wisdom as something that comes from above, very similar to Paul's description of the fruit of the Spirit. He, he talks, doesn't he, in the bit that I read, he says, um, he says, the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And that, that reminds me of that Galatians 5 passage about what your character starts to look like when it's birthed and, and immersed in God. The challenge is, from the day we are born, we are not taught this kind of wisdom. We're taught the worldly kind, how to survive and how to thrive. And we mostly trust it. And we mostly trust it because we are in control of it. It's things we can do, stuff we can do for ourselves, work that we can apply, or steps that we can take. I just want to explore what the Bible talks about when it talks about wisdom. Firstly, and it was contained in that Proverbs passage, wisdom in the Bible is named after a woman. Deathly silence. That just didn't go down well at all, did it? Wisdom is named after a woman. If your name is Sophie, your sister's name is Sophie, or Sophia, your name means Wisdom. That's the, the word for wisdom. Wisdom in Proverbs is characterized by a woman, and that's all there is to it. There's nothing I can do to change that. In Old Testament times and New Testament times, a woman was not generally the person ascribed authority and power, nor was she the person usually asked her opinion about almost anything. One of the um, incredibly odd things about um, the, the, um, the Gospels and the Resurrection is it's the women whose witness is trusted. The women who run to the tomb and see Jesus first. That's a really odd thing. You wouldn't make it up because it wouldn't have been believed. Wisdom is characterized as feminine and not related to the exercise of power. Much of what I said last week about wayward tongues and our, our, our loss of control in what we speak was because I believe we often slip into trying to control people, trying to exercise power through what we say because we want them to behave in a manner that pleases us. Godly wisdom, I believe, is that which is given through us to bless people, to free them into, into becoming what God wants them to be, not to control them. And when it's offered in that way, you get this amazing harvest that James writes about. He says, a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. So the, the wisdom of God is essentially thrown out there in the context of love and care and desiring to bless other people. If it isn't that, it's probably an exercise in control and power and needs to be tested and probably discarded. 
Second thing in the Bible, if you look at wisdom, it is usually set against the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of God is usually contrasted with the wisdom of the world. And 1 Corinthians says this very, very um, uh, directly. Chapter 1, verse 18. The message of the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. But we are, who are being saved know it is the very power of God. As the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent. So where does this lead the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish, since God in his wisdom saw to it that the world would never know him through human wisdom. He has used our foolish preaching to save those who believe. It is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles say it's nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Gentiles, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Making Jesus, his life, his words, his priorities, and his model, the way he lived his life, is pretty much the be-all and end-all of God's wisdom. Centering your life on Christ is where it all starts. Because Jesus was God's wisdom, his logos, made flesh. Jesus was God enacted on earth. And the way he lived and the priorities that he set make for us a model of human wisdom. So however foolish you may feel, however belittled you may feel in the eyes of the world, if you've made that choice, you're amongst the wisest people in the world. You may not get the reward for it that the world can offer, but you are one of the wisest people alive today. And if you have every scrap of knowledge available and every bit of wisdom uh, that the world would regard as wisdom, but you reject the hand of God, which is, which is extended to you, then far be it from me to call you a fool, but you are on your own. And I don't think that's wise in this world. It's a form of, of, of self-reliance that is hard to escape because worldly wisdom has its arms around you. It's very seductive. It's very persuasive about its own power. And it's hard to escape. So why is the wisdom of God so described? Well, firstly, I don't think the, the wisdom of the, um, making the, the, um, the wisdom of the world foolishness means, as it has come to mean in some denominations, that the dafter, the most stupid, the most risky decision must be the one that God wants you to take. Ever met people like that? You know, there's a fairly clear, wise thing for them to do, and they do the opposite, because to do that would be sensible. And God never wants me to do sensible things. You know, I've seen that logic. Pastorally, it drives you berserk. It, it, it really does, because you think, you're, you're heading for disaster, and I can't really argue with your logic, but I think I'm going to be picking you up in six months' time. And almost always you are. 
But it does mean that there are places and times in human life when human wisdom just runs out. You just reach the end of the line. You just reach Ealing Broadway on the tube. And there's nowhere else to go. But you still haven't solved your problem. And then you need God's wisdom to kick in. Human wisdom has done what it can. But it hasn't got you to to your home. It hasn't got you to your destination. And somehow you have to come out of the station, up the steps, and God's wisdom is somewhere there on Haven Green, you know, waiting for you. It can take you anywhere there, can't it? It can take you to Harlesden, it can take you to Southall, it can take you to into Acton or Hanwell, and you just don't know maybe where it's going to take you. But God's wisdom kicks in, not in defiance of human wisdom, but when human wisdom runs out of road. And secondly, Christ makes the world, the wisdom of the world look foolish, by which I think it means shows its limitations, not because we don't know how to live wisely or sensibly, but because we cannot save ourselves. And that's what I mean. You know, you, know, you can run your life probably pretty sensibly on the basis of common sense and just a few good mates probably to give you some advice. But that only gets you to Ealing Broadway. To save yourself, to really have salvation in your life, enlightenment, and be taken into that domain where you really become the person God wants you to to become. You need God's wisdom. The essential issue in the world is really related to our sin and our alienation from God and God's desire to bring us back. We're alienated from each other without that. We're alienated from him. We're alienated from creation. That's Genesis 1 to 3 summarized in about one sentence. But that is what one writer I read called the truest story I know. Everybody comes into that category and needs God's wisdom to get them to escape it. And God's solution to that problem is the precious gift of Jesus, his son. And therein lies wisdom. Therein lies this extra dimension of knowing that books can't teach you and other people can't teach you. And the wisdom of God sees the world through that salvation, restoration lens and the ability to see the bigger picture. That's two things. Firstly, wisdom is characterized as a woman and represents powerlessness and um, the, the lack of exercise of power. Secondly, it's set against the wisdom of, of the world because the wisdom of the world can only take you so far. Thirdly, the wisdom of God is a combination of meekness and authority, the two things at the same time. James writes that the wisdom from above is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and insincere. God's wisdom is derived from this biblical value of humility, a recognition of the limitation of our own sufficiency and wisdom. They do say, don't they, that the undergraduate knows everything. The postgraduate knows some things. But the professor knows absolutely nothing. You know, as you grow in appreciation of what there is to know, you realize how little 
you actually do know and how dependent you are on other things and on God. And often, true wisdom lies in not knowing the answer but the recognition of when there is no answer. It's a resting place in God. You know, it's a place of peace where he holds you. And that place is just trust, isn't it? Just a a place of resting that knows that you don't have the answer to this problem and that you've just got to trust him for the future. And that requires meekness and a letting go and a, a kind of cutting yourself adrift from this need to have answers all the time. Which I, I, you know, I'm the king of sinners. I've got to resolve that problem. I've got to fix it. There must be something I can do. It's not necessarily God's wisdom. But the second thing is this. At the same time as being meek, the wisdom of God carries incredible authority. When Stephen uh, was speaking to um, the council in uh, Acts chapter 6, it says some, some men from the synagogue started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. None of them could stand against the wisdom and spirit with which Stephen spoke. And when Jesus was speaking um, after the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished, for he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes. When you've let go or reached and recognized the, the limitation of the wisdom of the world and allowed God just to populate that, that space between your ears and you speak through that, your spirit-filled wisdom impacts people who hear you speak in a way that you probably can't understand. They are struck at a point somewhere between intellect and emotion because they're hearing God. Their emotions are stirred and their intellect surrenders to a higher truth. The wisdom that comes from God convicts people because it has authority. It moves people to change voluntarily. It's not an exercise in power. It's just an exercise of spirit. And you could call it anointed speech, if you like. It changes people. And it's so powerful that it doesn't need brute force to win through. So rarely do you read of Jesus raising his voice. So rarely do you sense that these New Testament apostles were shouting or arguing or asserting great aggression. They spoke as ones possessing authority. And the words of the spiritually wise are anointed as something about them. It's as if they're laced with something. Not that I've any experience of that. But you know what I mean. It's just something in it that breaks down barriers and convicts people. And that sort of wisdom is usually spotted by its fruit, by the outcome. And the outcome James describes as a harvest of righteousness sown in peace by those who make peace. I, th I think the truly wise are the people who seek to bring peace and calm and reconciliation to situations, not those who try and stir it up and start fires. You know, the careless tongue we, we, we read about last week was characterized as starting forest fires. Do you remember? Uncontrollable, raging things that went out of control. Wisdom 
is the opposite. We just seek to bring anointed speech into people's lives. How do you get wise? Well, I don't think you can really learn to speak like that. I think you can unlearn how to do the opposite, maybe, by by being more disciplined about the way we speak and think. But I think we need to have our minds changed. We need to have our hearts changed from within. I think we need to become different people. And there we are utterly reliant on opening ourselves up to the Spirit. God's truth is so much bigger than everything that we know. And wisdom simply recognizes that. And this is more a thing of surrender than it is of hard work or exercise. It's a case of seeing things differently or being allowed to be shown by God that they are different. To ask, seek, and knock after wisdom. Ask God to have your heart and mind changed. You know, 99.99999 recurring percent of all the experience of the world and of God lies in other people, not you. There are 7 billion other people other than you. It might be worth listening to other people and taking account of what they know about God and about life. I wonder if we could stand together. I'm very conscious, and we've already.